Hello and welcome to the Public Procurement Podcast with me, Peter Delge. Today, I'm interviewing Dr. Claire Metven O'Brien from the Danish Institute for Human Rights. Claire is an expert in human rights law, particularly human rights and business. She has a long experience both across Europe and in developing countries, dealing with multinational enterprises, governmental and human rights bodies, and also civil society. Claire is also a research fellow at the University of Groningen, at the Department of International Law, and a member of the International Law Association Working Group on Business and Human Rights. The topic of our talk today will be the intersection of human rights and public procurement, and how the first should influence the second. As always, I'm very grateful for the support of the British Academy Rising Star Engagement Awards, which made possible this project. Hello, Claire. Welcome to the program. Hi, Pedro. Good to meet you. It's great to have you here with us today, and I'd like to start the conversation by getting you to talk about your big idea or argument in a nutshell. Thank you. Well, human rights are, of course, a big idea. Uh, you might say the big idea of the, the 20th century. And what we have seen over the course of the 20th century, and now we're into the 21st, is the gradual extension of the application of human rights, not just from the state, but now also increasingly with a view to securing the accountability of non-state actors, and in particular, the private sector, to human rights standards. And of course, globalization and the rise of multinational enterprises, increasing liberalization, which has, has made that possible, have brought with it changes in the nature of production and the way in which production affects human individuals and communities. And unfortunately, a lot of the time, those impacts have not all been positive. And what has been very well publicized in recent decades are the negative environmental effects of that uh, multinational activity, but also, of course, negative impacts on labor conditions, working conditions, particularly in developing countries and in a variety of other ways. And the United Nations have sought for quite a number of years to generate standards which would be able to express the application of human rights norms to the private sector. Eventually, in 2011, the Human Rights Council endorsed a set of guiding principles on business and human rights, which affirm that states have got a responsibility to regulate the private sector in order that negative impacts on human rights are avoided, that private companies themselves have got a responsibility to respect human rights, and that also, thirdly, anyone who's a victim of human rights impacts or abuses perpetrated by or associated with businesses have a right to remediation and remedy for those. And part of those guiding principles focus on public procurement. And the guiding principles five and six in particular highlight the need for the state as part of its general duty in protecting and promoting human rights to make sure that in relation to the delivery of public services by the private sector, human rights are protected. And also in any commercial transactions that the state engages with, obviously entailing the involvement of the private sector, that human rights are also protected. Of course, you would expect that in line with the general push towards ensuring that private companies in their global 
supply chains ensure that human rights are protected. So we can see, if you like, that the time appears to have come for public procurement laws and regulations, which have historically often been perceived and, and sometimes in practice have also been applied to restrict the state's possibilities for introducing terms which are designed to protect human rights. We've seen that, you know, in terms of the general issue of sustainability in public procurement, also initiatives around fair trade. The time has come for that interpretation of public procurement law to be scrutinized to a much greater extent than has been uh, true previously, and to be aligned now with the requirements of human rights norms, which are, of course, fundamental norms which ought to define the rule of law for any state which assigned those human rights norms. And of course, in many countries are also part of the constitutional order. Okay, that's a very good introduction. Thank you. I would start with the end, as you said correctly, in many states, human rights are part of the constitutional order. But they're part of the constitutional order up to a certain extent. Now, the interesting point, as as you mentioned literally at the start, is that there's been a gradual expansion and extension of the concept of human rights over the last 50 or 70 years. And one of the queries I have is, how can we match, for example, the importance or relevance, let's say, of the first generation kinds of human rights, right to life, right to privacy, rights to private property, and so on, with more recent evolutions of the concept of human rights. Because, I mean, public procurement law has nothing to say that you cannot respect uh, human life, for example, in terms of or, or the conception as, as a human right. But what is now sometimes conceived as human rights on a more modern or contemporaneous um, interpretation those ideas, yes, they do clash with some of the objectives, at least inside the European Union, that are concerned by procurement law. I suppose in answer to that, I would say that there's less and less uh, support within human rights law and, and human rights circles for a view according to which you can distinguish waves or generations of human rights which have different weight, which have a different place in the normative order. Sure. Um, you know, that historically, of course, according to people's political preferences, either civil, political or economic, social rights were emphasized. And there are still jurisdictions in which distinctions are made between those, and they are given effect to in different ways through constitutional law. But on the other hand, in newer constitutions, you can see, and, and in some countries with older constitutions in, in different ways, you can see the significance of that distinction between civil, political, economic, social, and, and of course, including labor rights in the economic, social, that distinction beginning to be dissolved. And, you know, you can look towards, for instance, I mean, not to digress too much, but you can see in the area of human rights impact assessment, which is a discipline being increasingly applied to evaluate laws and policies at the regional level in the EU, in national jurisdictions. Those kinds of exercises will include economic and social along with civil and political rights. 
in the area of human rights-based budgeting uh, or participatory budgeting exercises, again, the focus in, for those will, will be all human rights. And certainly in the jurisprudence of bodies at the UN and in general, the general output of the UN human rights system, you will see increasingly less distinction between those categories that, that you've mentioned. So that it's a more holistic approach that is being applied and, and adopted by, I think, most bodies today. So it, it becomes harder to maintain in the public procurement context that that is a, you know, a distinction. I think that is the crux of the problem. When you say that there's a more modern holistic approach to the interpretation of the or the concept of what should constitute uh, human rights and that we should not distinguish between different kinds of human rights or waves, the fact is the examples that you've given, other than the ones that are received directly in the constitutions, for example, in the European Charter of Human Rights, all those other human rights, they are based in soft law. So the example that you use at the start, for example, of the guiding principles that were put out by the Human Rights Council of the UN, they constitute an example of soft law, right? That's correct, but that's another binary. The, the hard and soft law distinction, of course, is a binary one which quite a lot of scholars, political scientists, have questioned the utility of in understanding what actually has the effect of producing changes in society. And the guiding principles, albeit as technically a soft law standard, have been remarkable in a short space of time in what they have achieved in terms of triggering action at the international level, but also at the national level. So the European Commission in its 2011 communication on corporate social responsibility called on EU member states to develop national action plans on business and human rights with reference to, to these UN guiding principles. And subsequently, already a number of EU member states have produced national action plans on business and human rights, all of which I should say that have been published mention public procurement mm -hmm. and the need at the national level to either undertake reviews of the extent to which existing measures ensure respect for human rights in the course of public contracting or similar measures. You know, and then at the yes, at the international level, the OECD has aligned its guidelines for multinational enterprises with the UN guiding principles, so that the OECD guidelines now include reference to human rights and when at the national level, again, national contact points under the OECD guidelines receive complaints about the conduct of businesses based in the OECD abroad, again, those national contact points are now called on to determine those complaints or to facilitate the mediation of those kinds of complaints with reference to the UN guiding principles, essentially. So, you know, just in terms of the sorts of practices that we see evolving and emerging amongst public authorities and central government, you can see that notwithstanding their status as a, as a soft law standard, guiding principles have actually had a, a lot of significant effects already. Going back to the fact that the EU Commission put out a CSR policy or communication document in 2011, and some member states have created national action plans, again, we are in the realm of soft law. I mean, it's not a decision by the European Commission, it's not a regulation, it's not 
a directive and certainly not a part of the treaties. So, again, coming from my perspective and from my understanding of, of law, that is, again, an idea that it fosters or it tries to help to nudge member states in a certain direction. But the litmus test here is that if member states do not comply with that communication, nothing will happen to them. Well, I completely agree with you on that. The litmus test is, of course, whether at national level or indeed at the regional level of the EU, sure. the policy commitments made to human rights are internalised through the adoption of specific laws on whatever subject which are aligned to the uh, ambitions and commitments contained in human rights standards. And in that respect, certainly the recent procurement directives have been disappointing. While the Commission maintains that the new directives provide ample scope to allow public authorities in the EU to undertake procurement practice, which does comply with the guiding principles, my assessment is that... In technical terms, the changes that have been made are narrow. They're narrow in as much as they refer actually only to core labour standards. So the rights protected by the ILO's core labour standards, forced labour, child labour, discrimination and some trade union rights. But in practical terms, the Commission has not done anything to suggest they're going to follow through in promoting awareness of the commitments of the EU to the guiding principles and to ensuring respect for human rights, therefore also in procurement, in relation to the transposition of the directives or really in any way undertaking activities to support public authorities within EU member states to understanding what the significance of, of human rights might be in the procurement context. And there's a lot of things that the Commission or public authorities, procurement authorities at the national level can do to help purchasing authorities begin to get on the human rights train, if you like, or to begin that journey. Because none of us on the human rights side who've been looking at public procurement would say that it's a simple or straightforward matter to advance human rights in procurement, while also at the same time respecting the other legal obligations on public authorities flowing from public procurement law and, and in other areas. It's it's not going to be easy because, as I said at the beginning, historically, there has been a both real and perceived conflict between public authorities' obligations to ensure that they take action to ensure that procurement respects human rights, for the companies they contract with respect human rights, while meeting their other other obligations. So if you could provide us an example of how member states and contracting authorities should work together to develop more, let's say, human rights friendly or human rights compliant policies and procurement. Maybe I can start by illustrating a couple, since, since we haven't touched on it already, just some of the human rights issues that are arising in the context of public procurement in case listeners are, are not familiar with those. And just to give a few examples, focusing on the more egregious examples, these are, in fact, cases that 
some of which have taken from a report by the International Corporate Accountability Roundtable, ICAR, report on the public procurement and human rights called Turning a Blind Eye, Respecting Human Rights in Government Purchasing, which of course is on the internet. But the insignia, for instance, of US military services were found in the rubble of factory fires that recently have killed thousands of workers in Bangladesh. The Danish government, of course, I'm sitting in Denmark today, has been reported to also to order military uniforms from an export processing zone, in fact, also in Bangladesh, where trade unions are prohibited. Plastic gloves procured by the public health sector, healthcare sector in Denmark, have also been documented to contain rubber from plantations which rely on forced labour. And a US government contractor transported Nepalese construction workers from their home country into Iraq, which was at that time a combat zone. And while en route, their convoy was attacked by insurgents who executed them and posted their deaths on the internet. So you can see there's really quite a, just in relation to procurement of goods, there's quite a wide range of serious human rights abuses that can be associated with procurement. And also in the area of public services, particularly I have familiarity with the UK, there have been various reports produced by national human rights institutions in the UK, by parliamentary human rights committee, and of course by NGOs, who on the lack of respect for human rights and dignity in the private delivery of health and social care for the elderly or other people, persons with disabilities or other people who need personalised care. So in, in that context, there's all kinds of ways in which elderly, vulnerable people who are dependent on the state taking due action to look after them and ensure their human rights respected have, have actually been totally let down. And either the framework the framework terms of contracts or the monitoring provided for, or indeed, you know, the, the price paid for those kinds of services has been inadequate to ensure that a, an appropriate standard of care is, is delivered. So in this final example, if I may, it's more an issue not with the procurement process in itself, but the actual outcome, the actual service that is being procured that does not respect the human rights of the users or beneficiaries. It's not always clear-cut that that's the case. And in fact, the Scottish Human Rights Commission collaborated in recent years with the Scottish government in relation to the review of the whole contracting process in relation to those kinds of services that we've just been discussing to look at in what ways the process of, of commissioning of, of care can be changed in order that human rights um, are integrated right from the beginning of that process. So we don't want to be in a position where we're trying to close the door after the horse has bolted. It's really a question of ensuring right from the get-go, from the design of the terms of tenders or framework contracts, that human rights are being adequately considered. Similarly, in Northern Ireland, the Human Rights Commission there is working likewise with public procurement authorities to look at those kinds of issues.
So to go back to your earlier question, how can we really start to work together to address the problems that have been identified? There are some very encouraging examples of collaboration and mutual support between public procurement authorities and bodies with human rights expertise. And those are things that we certainly hope to build on in the public procurement and human rights learning laboratory that we uh, aim to launch later this year that would involve ourselves as national human rights institutions, a number of us, but also public procurement authorities from a number of different countries in the Scandinavian region and, and perhaps in the UK. And the aim of that laboratory will be to work together to map out in what ways public procurement law and human rights law can be mutually supportive, in what ways they perhaps are perceived to conflict, and then within the room for manoeuvre that the legal framework permits to identify what more can be done at each of the different stages of the procurement process to effectively integrate consideration of human rights. Going back to your your example, I think you've touched on something that is important, which is it's important to consider what happens at every stage of the procurement procedure or the procurement process, and that includes also the performance. And monitoring contract performance has been one of the biggest problems in public procurement for many, many years. Usually what tends to happen is you have a team that is responsible to get the contract together, and you may have the best team in the world, and they may design the best contract for you, but then when it comes through to be implemented, it's passed on to someone else. And it's usually at the implementation stage that A, the problems arise, irrespectively of the quality of the actual original contract. So I wouldn't be surprised if actually the easiest fruits to pick, the low-hanging fruit, would actually be at the performance level, because that is very much aligned with where procurement needs to improve its game. It's no longer the question of only of the procedure, it's much more so the question of the actual contract performance. Yes, and... I think I'm not in a position now to to make it, you know, an evaluation of the relative contribution that monitoring might make as compared with interventions at earlier stages in in the procurement process. I'm sure there's a lot in what you say, and certainly from my experience of working with the private sector in supply chain management, monitoring is usually an area which requires greater resources than have previously been devoted to it. Fully agree with you. And resources, you know, are really the key issue here. Of course, it's easy to make commitments to ethical or human rights standards as a purchaser, and it's relatively easy to pass those on through a contract to your suppliers. And it's relatively easy and cost-free to do those things. It does cost money either to yourself or to the supplier to take steps to ensure that the delivery of the contract is audited and monitored. And that is a significant obstacle for most companies, as it will be for public purchasers. You know, finding the resources to pay for that monitoring operation will not be easy thing to do. So there again, I think, well, there's possibly scope for the public sector to learn from some of the collaborative endeavours of the private sector in relation to supply chain audit and monitoring, the sharing of audit reports and 
platforms which have been developed to allow them to share. Of course, then you have the risk in some cases of running into anti-competitive practices, um, (laughs) which again goes to show the potential for contradictions that exists in relation to measures to support human rights and what public procurement and, and fair competition require. Our time is almost up and I'd like to finish it off with two quick questions. What are you going to try to achieve with the, with the laboratory project that you're talking about? Um, well, our aim with the laboratory project is to generate knowledge, essentially, for public procurement agencies and, and other public purchasers on what their room for manoeuvre is in terms of taking greater steps to incorporate respect for human rights in the procurement process and to disseminate that knowledge in the form of notes on good practice, case notes on experiences of pilot projects that have been run by our participants and and to disseminate that as widely as possible. So we really hope it will be the beginning of a much longer and wider conversation amongst public procurement agencies and, of course, human rights stakeholders on what creative and innovative steps can be taken to combat some of the the challenges and contradictions we've been discussing. Okay, brilliant. Final question. If uh, anyone wants to get in touch with you, where should they head? They can reach me by email on cob at humanrights.dk and we'll be very happy to hear from any agencies that would be interested in taking part in, in the lab. Okay, brilliant. Thank you very much, Claire. Thank you, Pedro. You can find me at my blog, tells.eu, or on Twitter, where I use the two handles, one at Detic for general discussion and also at Public Procure for public procurement-related topics. Thank you very much and see you next time.